Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's mid-July 2020, and we haven't had a, a Donald Trump show for a while. So for those people addicted to the narrative of Donald Trump, uh, we have perhaps America's foremost political analyst on the show today. Uh, Ron Brownstein is a uh, senior editor at Atlantic and a senior political analyst at CNN. And as I joked with him before, perhaps it's not a joke, he's one of the few people left on the center or in the center of American politics who people both on the left and the right trust. Uh, Ron, why should we trust you? <laughs> well, you know, I, look, uh, I don't think any of us deserve to be trusted uh, on our own. Uh, you know, you have, everyone should be uh, Kind of cross-checking and triangulating at whatever they they hear and, and from from any one source. But I would say, in my own defense, you know, I have spent 35 years covering American politics consistently from the outside in. By what I by which I mean, you know, my focus has never really been campaigns and the internal workings of campaigns and you know how they're picking their ads or where they place their ads or who has the candidate's ear. I've always focused on how American politics interacts with the underlying demographic, cultural, and economic changes uh, that are shaping our society. And you know, I have felt uh, over really the last 20 years, our politics increasingly sorting in a way that was about how people oriented themselves toward those, uh, toward those fundamental changes. And in 2012, I wrote a column uh, after, the, uh, second, uh, after the Obama re-election, the Obama-Romney race, and I wrote that we now, in American politics, you know, we're divided less along class lines than we are between what I call a coalition of restoration and a coalition of transformation. And by that I meant that the Republicans were increasingly mobilizing a coalition centered on the parts of the country and the voters who were most uneasy about the way the country was changing in every dimension. Uh, and Democrats were mobilizing a coalition that among the, the places and the people who are most comfortable and even welcoming of the way the country was changing demographically, culturally, and economically. Um, and I wrote that in 2012. And I think Donald Trump came along and very much uh, validated that idea and more explicitly has drawn these lines in American politics. And I think you will see whatever the result is in November. Uh, and right now you'd have to say, of course, Trump is the underdog. But even if he finds a way to pull it out, I think you're going to see the widest divide ever between Metro America which is diverse, more secular, more info age, more white collar, more comfortable with these changes, and non-Metro America, which is more white, more Christian, more non-college, more rooted in the big 20th century industries of energy, manufacturing, and agriculture. That divide, Andrew, is going to be, in many ways, the defining characteristic of this election, no matter who wins. Well, I just wrote a book called uh, Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday. So I think your restoration transformation distinction is, is, is an interesting one. Um, but you seem to be arguing that it's not 
a, a balanced split. You yeah. you you argue in your latest Atlantic piece, which I think is really really wonderful piece, and I hope it's true. You say Trump's America is slipping away, and you argue that Donald Trump is running for the presidency of an America that no longer exists. But don't many Americans acknowledge that, and more and more Americans are nostalgic for that America that no longer exists either? Well, it's, it's, that's, that's a complex question. So I believe Trump's strategy can be reduced to a single sentence, right? It is squeezing big, bigger margins out of shrinking groups at the expense of provoking greater resistance from the groups that are growing in society. I mean, you can look at that both demographically, you know, if you look at his struggles among millennials and Generation Z, which uh, this year will be for the first time will equal baby boomers and older as a share of eligible voters. And by 2024, they will exceed them as a share of actual voters. Uh, you can look at it geographically. As I mentioned, you know, Trump is dominant in small town and rural America, places that are uh, by and large stagnant or losing population. He lost 87 of the 100 largest counties in America by a combined 15 million votes. And the odds, I think, are very high that he will lose those big places by even more this time, in part because they are the places that are being hit the hardest by the coronavirus. Um, so there, you know, there's no question in my mind that what he is doing is trading uh, the, the shrinking, you know, better, bigger margins of shrinking places for more resistance and growing places. That can work in the short run with differential turnout, and also because there are many aspects of our systems of our system that advantage. The shrinking groups, you know, the, the the electoral college and the Senate, which provides two senators per state, no matter how small, that is a benefit to Republicans who are reliant on the parts of the country that are least touched by diversity. You know, you can go through North Dakota and South Dakota and Nebraska and Kansas and Montana and Wyoming, and you know, you you don't run into a lot of what I'm describing as kind of this emerging America. But uh, in the long run, uh, that and even the medium run. There is a price to that strategy. I mean, you saw one element of that price in 2018 when Republicans were routed in our big metropolitan centers in the House, not only in places where they have struggled before and were kind of clinging you know, to the, to the ledge of those last few seats like Philadelphia or Northern Virginia or New Jersey, but we're talking Richmond, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, Charleston, Oklahoma City, places where they had not previously seen, Orange County even where they had not previously seen that kind of erosion. Um, so it is, a, it is a striking bet that Republicans have made to accept this trade that Trump is imposing on the party, I think, with, with, without a peep, even after 2018. I mean, just think about 94 or 82 in the Republican Party. Usually when a party gets shellacked, there's some introspection. Trump will not allow that. Trump will not allow anything, but everything is fine. And we'll see if everything is not fine in November whether Republicans can build a critical mass for kind of saying, can you write off the groups and the places that are growing to maximize your hold on the places that are stagnant or shrinking? What I don't understand about Trump is he, he's obviously an opportunist and deeply self-interested. Uh, why doesn't he recognize this? Because he only has to win one more election. He only has to win two elections. I mean, he... You know, I've likened him to a, uh, a in, in baseball here, a general manager... I don't know if this applies in soccer, but a general manager who will trade away all of a team's long-term prospects, all of their good young players to try to stockpile veterans to win 
the World Series that next year or the year after. It was probably in the 70s and the Washington Redskins used to do this um, on the theory that by the time the bill comes due, he'll be on a beach somewhere sipping a drink out of, you know, with an umbrella, in it, um, uh, a little paper umbrella in it. And I think Trump's the same way. I mean, I don't think Trump is worried about what the long term future of the Republican Party is. He is trying to squeeze out one more election. And he had a choice when he won. Right. I mean, he could have tried to speak to the constituencies and the geographic areas that were skeptical of him. And instead, he has governed in a very consistent manner where he has used the big metros, the big cities as a foil, uh, raising them as a threat to try to energize his non-urban base. And he has been, you know, much more likely to, you know, he's continued to rail against immigrants and pursue policies uh, along those lines. And it is all about maximizing margin and turnout among non-urban, non-college and Christian whites, especially evangelicals, especially men in all of those categories. Um, and it might work. I, you know, you could imagine a scenario where he loses Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, as well as all the states that Clinton uh, law won, and then finds a way to hold the line in Wisconsin, Florida, and Arizona, and squeezes out an electoral college victory, even while losing the popular vote. But right now, you'd have to say he's not nearly close enough in the popular vote to make even that strategy uh, a possibility. You compare this Trump strategy to Nixon's. Um, yeah. But you, you suggest that there is a profound difference between Trump or the, the America of Trump yeah. and Nixon's time because of demo, profound demographic, demographic shifts in, in race, education and religion. What's happened over the last 50 years, Ron? Yeah. I mean, this is I mean, we do not think there was a lot of Nixon nostalgia in America, but Trump certainly has Nixon nostalgia and he wants to replay the 1968 playbook when Nixon won the election by promising, quote, law and order to what he called the silent majority. And Trump, you know, uh, reprises those phrases all of the time. But think about who Trump's arguments are aimed at. The principal audience for his electoral um, messaging from the beginning have been whites without a college education. Well, in 1968, whites without a college degree were almost 80 percent of the voters. In 2020, it's likely they're going to be 42 percent of the voters. Uh, college educated whites were about a little under 15% in 1968. They'll probably be about 30% this time. And non-whites in 1968 were a little under 10%, almost all of them African-Americans. Well, this time non-whites are probably going to be just under 30% or maybe exactly 30% if the post-George Floyd movement um, uh, generates a big turnout. So you're talking about the audience that Trump is is primarily aiming at is roughly half as big a share of the electorate as it was. The same thing is true when looking at it on, on, the, on the basis of religion. In, in 1968, 85% of Americans identified as white Christians. It's now 42% of the country. Back then, only about 3% of Americans didn't identify with any religious tradition. Now it's eight times as much, 24%. And those seculars are a staunchly democratic um, constituency. Uh, fewer people are married. Fewer people live outside of the big metros than they did in 1968. And, and there's two other important differences uh, in, in the eras that are not about the underlying demographic changes, but they're about the exterior reality. First is that the violent crime rate was rising rapidly 
in the late, in the mid to late 1960s. I mean, it doubled between the early 60s and the early 70s, despite all of Trump's fulminations about American carnage and all his warnings about chaos on the streets, the violent crime rate is lower today than it was 10 years ago. And uh, the murder rate is not only is lower than it was in 1968, it's back to the level of, of 1960. Robbery rate, aggravated assault, all of these things peaked decades ago and are significantly lower than they were at their peak. And the other difference is that in white America, particularly in white collar white America, there is a very different attitude about race. Um, and there are more whites today than then uh, who are willing to say that there are structural inequities and bias in our system. And that those last two things, Andrew, when you bring them together, comes to what may be the most profound change, I think, between then and now. When Nixon promised law and order, most white suburbanites thought he was going to deliver it. But I think it is very clear in the polling now that most white suburbanites fear that Trump means more disorder and more violence, that his kind of putting out fires with gasoline approach makes them less safe rather than more safe. And there was one survey by our Quinnipiac University, one of our pollsters here, that found that non, uh, excuse me, college educated whites were twice as likely to say they felt less safe rather than more with Trump as president. And that is obviously a big hole in the bucket if you're trying to recreate the Nixon strategy. So if indeed uh, what you're suggesting that the, 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 the differences between these two Americas is not quite as profound as we're led to believe, why is there more and more of a chasm between the parties? Why has there been this really violent, and I use that word carefully, shift in how people think of their identities in terms of political parties and their rejection of the other party? Well, I, I guess I know I do think that there is a there is a there is a profound difference. And it, it is it, and it is not surprising that we are seeing the partisan divide uh, look so ominous now. It's be, I mean, you know, the, uh, my big point is that every cherry on the slot machine now lines up, you know, that you have a Democratic coalition that is overwhelmingly comfortable with cultural change, different roles for women, more tolerance of uh, same-sex relationships, you know, go up and down, more likely to believe that uh, um, uh, immigration is a positive for the country, that is okay with demographic change, that doesn't mind pressing seven for Spanish, that doesn't mind uh, trans, you know, the transgender bathroom. I mean, none of this is really an issue in metro diverse America. And by and large, they are okay with an economy uh, that is uh, connected to the world, both in terms of immigration and uh, and trade, if you look at the voters as opposed to the leaders. And you have a Republican coalition that's on the opposite side of all of that. Um, and they are inhabiting increasingly different uh, Americas. Uh, you know, one kind of ominous statistic is that we, what was the final margin in, in 2016? It was about two points, two and a half points between Clinton and Trump. 60% of us live in counties that were decided by 20 points or more. So there's no question we're sorting out. And we saw this in 2018, where the uh, Democrats won a number you know, really routed the Republicans inside the metro areas um, uh, in the House and really made very few inroads outside of the metro areas in the House. Um, uh, and we saw the same thing uh, in the Senate, where the Democrats made further gains in the Southwest, in Nevada uh, and um, uh, Arizona, but Republicans won in Missouri and Indiana and North Dakota, where there were big rural white populations. And I, I think everything points toward this separation 
accelerating. As, I, as we were talking about before, I think Democrat, the, the, the coalition of transformation is a majority of the country. That doesn't mean, given the way our system works, it is always going to be able to govern as a majority. But I do think it is the majority. I think the underlying separation is the most consistent and probably for the time being irreversible uh, trend. And this division between, as you say, the coalition of transformation and restoration is, is also divided on ontological grounds. It seems as if they have not only different worlds, but different visions of what constitute not only facts, but truth. How worried are you that this upcoming election is going to degenerate into, uh, at best, constitutional, a constitutional crisis or at worst, violence? Uh, I am, my worry is in direct proportion to what the margin looks like, right? I mean, if, if, if uh, we get to November and it looks anything like it looks like today with Trump losing by eight points, maybe, uh, you know, he'll lose, he'll lose too convincingly for there to be uh, much of a, I mean, he will fulminate and he will say it was stolen and there was mail fraud and all of that. But if you lose by 10 million votes or, you know, 9 million votes or something, I don't, I don't see how you press that very far. If it gets close, I would be very worried. I would be very worried. And I would not count on Senate Republicans to kind of stand up for the constitution based on everything that they have done during the Trump years. I mean, you could easily imagine Mitch McConnell kind of making some noises about, well, we need a commission, you know, to study uh, the, the, the irregularities of this election. And can we trust the results in Maricopa County and in, in Arizona? Um, so if it's close, I think it could be very uh, rocky. If it's not close, I don't think anybody can, you know, there won't be many. Trump will bugle, but there won't be many followers. And what's your take on Biden and his uh, effort or perhaps lack of effort so far to to. Uh to appear uh, in, in people's consciousness. It seems as if he's just sitting in a dark room and, and, and leaving Trump to self-destruct. Right. Well, you know, Joe Biden became the nominee of the Democratic Party 50 years after he was first elected to office. And I went back a few months ago, and that's, that's the widest span in American history. There's never been a nominee who was chosen for the first time 50 years after he was first elected to office. There is, I think, mathematically, no chance that Democrats would have turned to Joe Biden at this point in their history, given who their coalition, given who he is, uh, except that he seemed to be the solution to a very particular problem, which is winning back enough older and blue collar white voters in a few Midwestern states to squeeze back into the White House. Um, so I start with that, that there was only ever going to be so much enthusiasm, not only in the country overall, but even within the Democratic Party, about making Biden president. Uh, that is not, it's not, you know, no one is calling him the one like Obama. I mean, we're not, we're not in a 2008 situation uh, like that. Uh, but uh, there is obviously a tremendous amount of enthusiasm on the Democratic side for defeating Donald Trump. And what the virus has meant is that uh, Biden, as you suggest, has been able to kind of step out of the ring, really, for the last four months. I mean, it really has been Trump against the virus and Trump is losing. Uh, I think you have to say that Biden's low profile. They, they, they kind of bitch and moan sometimes that the media isn't covering them enough. I think it's low enough that uh, it has to be seen as a deliberate choice to kind of stay out of the way. Um, uh, now, you know, the last 10 days or so, as we talk here in, 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 uh, in mid-July, 
Um, he is beginning to put forward his economic agenda, gave a speech on, on, on climate, gave a speech last week on uh, manufacturing, uh, and he is kind of stepping up the pace a little bit. But I think that the level of uh, a crisis that we are going through again here in July in the U.S. guarantees that the presidential race is going to stay on the back burner for the next few weeks. Um, and it, it is possible, by the way, that it, we shift to the presidential race in August around the conventions, and then we shift back to the coronavirus in September because I don't know a lot of people who think that reopening universities and putting 30,000 kids together in one place is going to go great uh, in terms of the story of September may be things that reopened having to close again. So I think Biden has chosen to step away. There is there is a, an advantage to this. Trump has not been able to kind of demonize him. Trump has really not even been able to create a contrast. There was a cost, though, too, which is that. Um, Biden remains very undefined with younger voters, especially younger voters of color, not generating a lot of enthusiasm among them. And that hasn't seemed to be like a real serious problem, because as you probably know, he's been running better than any Democrats since Gore in 2000 among older voters, including older white voters. I think there is some evidence over the last two weeks that Trump's turned to more overt racial appeals. Black Lives Matter is a symbol of hate and, you know, raging about statues. I think that's having some effect with older white voters. And the, the kind of the uh, showing that Biden has had with those older white voters may not be sustainable in the face of this kind of cultural assault. And it will kind of move the spotlight back to the fact of his biggest failure has been he's not really engaging with and energizing those younger non-white voters. Oh, dear. So I began this conversation quite optimistic that Trump's America is slipping away. You're you're suggesting perhaps. No, I think Trump is still in a very very difficult situation. Uh, again, I think there's almost no chance of him winning the popular vote. I think the only way he w I don't think there's any chance of him holding Michigan. I think there's very little chance of him holding Pennsylvania. The only way he wins is if he turns out enough non-urban voters to hold the line in Arizona, Wisconsin, Florida, and North Carolina. Not to mention Georgia. Um, so it's not an easy task for him. All I'm saying is that some of the gains that Biden has showed, shown among older whites, as, as some people have suggested from the beginning, may be tough to sustain all the way through the finish line. And somewhere between now and November, he's going to have to figure out a better way to talk to this emerging America. You know, if you look at, for example, a state like Texas, who has become an eligible voter since 2016? It is overwhelmingly non-white. It is overwhelmingly young. Biden has to figure out a way to engage those voters better than he has so far. They haven't really had a focus on it very much because, again, his strength with older whites has kind of disguised that continuing weakness. But I think he will need to solve it. He has lots to work with. They don't like Trump. Trump's disapproval among millennials and, and Generation Z can be as low as as high as 75% disapproval, depending on the poll, but they don't have a positive impression. They don't really have any impression of Biden. Very briefly, Ron, if, if Biden does indeed win in 2020, is there a, a new normal in America? Can we go back to more normality or is post-2020 going to be a new chapter in American cultural, political, economic history? Very briefly, I know it's a big subject. I think Trump is uniquely an anarchist and uniquely almost a nihilist. And with him out, some of the venom, if he loses, would, would dissipate. But if you say that such a large share of non-college whites and non-urban whites and Christian whites 
are open to a Trumpian message that is fundamentally about racial identity and racial nationalism when they are 42% of the population, I wonder why would they be any less open to it when they're 38% of the population? And I think that the structural ingredients are there for a continued conflict between this Democratic coalition of transformation and a Republican coalition of restoration. I would say that the, the milk carton does have an expiration date, which is the point at which a Trumpian message of racial identity that is aimed at maxing performance and turnout among those groups I mentioned is no longer viable at a national strategy precisely at the moment when it can no longer hold Texas. And that may be 2020, that may be 2024, but Texas is the place where the rubber meets the road, I think. And a strategy that writes off the growing, diverse, more secular, more info-age metro centers becomes unviable if Texas tips. And it will tip on the trajectory that the Republican Party is now on at some point before 2030. As with so many other things, then uh, the world ends in Texas. Finally, Ron... Uh, you're where are you in in New York at the moment, or well, in I'm Los Angeles? Uh, oh, you're in LA. Um, well, I'm in San Francisco. What are you reading at the moment? You're stuck inside, uh, like everybody else. A- anything that people should be particularly reading to prepare themselves for this bizarre election in November? Well, first of all, to 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 um, uh, deal with this bizarre election, Nightboat to Tangier, Kevin Barry, best novel in years, just. Joycean at points, so I will I will start with that, and then you know a, a new book on the on the political environment. Uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, you know, they come out every couple of years with another variation of uh, uh, what's the matter with Kansas, and there and you know let me tweets, you know their attempt to explain uh, how how a, a Republican Party that delivers cultural grievance for kind of lower middle class America and economic benefits for upper middle class, very upper middle class America, how that how that uh, formula works. Uh, I think that's a pretty, uh, pretty strong uh, version of that. And also David Paul Kuhn, The Hard Hat Riot, uh, which I just read, which is a recount of the 1970 construction worker riot against any war protesters. And boy, you can hear the you can see the distant echoes of a Donald Trump rally in that. You've been listening to Keenan, hosted by me. Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.